with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. In today's show, we'll talk about G20 summit was held in Bali, Indonesia. What issues are talking on the G20 agenda? And we will also take a look at China's economy is continuing its recovery momentum in October. Now let's begin with our top story. G20 summit was held in Bali, Indonesia this week. The theme of this year's event is Recover Together, Recover Stronger. World leaders and representatives gathered on the Indonesia island of Bali talking about economy, health, digital transformation, energy, food, and much more. Chinese President Xi Jinping put forward a three-point proposal when addressing the G20 summit, saying that we need to promote a more inclusive, beneficial, and resilient global development. So for more on this, join us on the line now are Dr. Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, Chu Qiang, the Assistant Director of the International Monetary Institute at Renmin University, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. So now working together to make global development more inclusive, beneficial, resilient is the solution given by China. What do you make of it? Um, I think it requires a lot of the policy coordination in the fiscal and the monetary front. Um, because when we look at what's going on in the world now, the number one issue, of course, is inflation. And to tackle that, uh, almost all the major Western central banks have to raise interest rates and for a very long time. And in the long term, this will have far-reaching redistribution effects because if we look at how dollar-denominated assets are performing comparing to other assets, we would have found that from the beginning of this year, if you are holding any sort of dollar asset, it already appreciated by at least 20%. And this level of wealth redistribution around the globe will have very big spillover effects, especially into the developing markets. And that's why I think a coordinated policy and more inclusive growth model would be even more important than ever. And so, Xu Qiang, universally beneficial and more inclusive. That means not every country, not every economy is benefiting from the previous or the current type of development. And also, we need to build a more resilient global growth over there. So how do you look at that? Yes, I think uh, we have been learning about uh, how economies should grow in the past 200 years. Remember, in the first wave of industrialization, only a few countries are the winner. Uh, they are on top of technology and they colonize the rest of the world. So everyone else is extremely poor, but only uh, like five countries or six countries are winning. And until the second wave of industrialization and the way we see after the Second World War, uh, I mean, the Western countries uh, together with uh, uh, their attaches are uh, winning the economy, like the uh, emerging economy like Japan and uh, Korea uh, has been growing. And uh, after that, I think now we've been facing the third wave of the new industrialization. I think uh, this time is different. It's because we've been seeing uh, the previous logics not working anymore. Uh, we cannot just uh, ground up a small club 
and rise up a high threshold and refuse other people to join in. I keep the high living standard and you should not. That kind of a logic won't work because if we do not pay attention to the rest of the world, if the rest of the world do not have the affordability to buy your product, how can you continue to grow your GDP? And if the rest of the world are in a chaos and a crisis, you will also get the spillover of the geopolitical conflict. And all this negative result has all been witnessed currently. So I think this is a time to think about how we can inclusively develop our together economy and to make the whole village of the globe to be commonly prosperous. And now let's talk about the current global challenges. For example, the food and energy crisis, the fragility of the financial markets, the danger of a major recession hitting many countries in the world. So first, Aina, is it possible that the food prices are just going to be higher across the board for everybody? Or what do you think the G20 or the global community should do to jointly tackle the food crisis? Well, the food crisis is, has many layers. You you have the interruption um, that was caused by the Ukraine situation. Now, markets adjust. Countries that have arable land can start planting and things like that. But a lot of it is up to Mother Nature. And the secondary part is uh, global warming, because what that does is sea re- levels rise, and that affects a lot of these areas, these very fertile uh, bottomlands where rivers enter into oceans. Uh, when these rise, those uh, areas become um, <clears throat> unplantable because of seawater. And so you start losing very, very fertile land, and that will have an effect. So we're going to have to see over the next um, few years exactly how uh, the world reacts and how we can change that. Uh, ironically, one of the largest areas that with uh, undeveloped arable land is, of course, in Russia. So that is going to be an issue. This, uh, then you get down to these other levels, for instance, fertilizers. That has also been interrupted, and that is decreasing yields across the world. I mean, in, in Germany, they had a decreased yield this year of about uh, over 20 percent. And that, that that really affects things. And to the extent that you know, fertilizer is necessary, especially in South America, uh, places like Brazil, which have been traditional bread baskets, it will not stop production, but it will lessen the amount of yield per acre uh, that is out there. So I would say overall, you can expect higher food prices for uh, quite some time until, as I said, uh, the world adjusts. Mm. So now, what do you think the global community can do to jointly tackle the food crisis? Um, for the global food supply, there is actually uh, not a, a widespread problem if we look at it as a whole. As long as food trade can continue and some kind of uh, price mechanism is still working, then we wouldn't see the kind of famine or short food, short of food uh, in the developing world. But now the main problem is that um, the transportation, of course, is constantly disrupt, uh, disrupted uh, for different reasons. And the food supply is quite abundant in the major food exporting countries. But for places uh, like Africa and uh, several Middle Eastern countries, um, the situation is getting worse. Um, it is hard at this point to adjust down food prices, of course. But we can also see there is a different priority now in international aiding agency. Um, their top dollars are going to places like Ukraine. And for many countries that are in dire need for their daily necessities, 
they're not getting enough because of a different political priority now. Mm. And then, so for energy crisis, some are talking about energy transition, and、uh, but it seems that the transition to go green, clean energy seems to have been hit by the fuel crisis. So many countries are restarting their coal plants and using other fossil fuel. How is this going to, you know, affect the carbon peaking and carbon neutrality plans? Um, there's an interesting divergence after COVID.、Uh, when we look at renewable energy investment in the emerging markets, including China, India, and Brazil, their investment actually still are increasing.、Um, but in developed markets, especially in Europe,、um, their green transition obviously have、uh, rolled back、uh, for good reason because they are hit the most by the energy crisis. And now the European countries are trying everything they can to find alternative sources of clean energy.、Uh, they are also using more of the natural gas uh, from uh, different sources. But since it's in liquefied form, they don't really have the infrastructure to make that transition. So now、uh, I think the situation is getting a bit trickier because they still want to reach、uh, the climate change goal. Um, but then they have to rely on other countries when it comes to energy-intensive products. So globally, the climate change goal is jeopardized. And、mm. if we don't tackle the inflation problem、uh, soon, then it is very unlikely that、uh, the world can meet its decarbonization target、mm. uh, as before. So, Doctor Chu actually then mentioned the inflation. We've seen that inflation running out of the roof for many countries. So, what should we do to curb the global inflation? And in particular, what should the developed economies do to mitigate the negative spillovers from their monetary policy adjustments? Well, I think the inflation has been talked about many times.、Uh, everybody understands、um, one: the root cause is because of the impact of the pandemic. So、uh, many of central banks and the governments started to issue、uh, the money into the market to help and relieve、uh, the families and enterprises. Well, I think the starting point and th- their intention is is good, but you cannot deny that the huge quantity of the money supply actually flooded the whole market, the whole globe. So we've been seeing America has been printing like five trillion. U.S. dollars into the market in one year—that that is just unimaginable because they spend only 1.1 trillion U.S. dollar in Afghanistan over 12 years. But just imagine five trillion within one year, and every other government and central bank are doing similarly. So that's one of the root causes. And secondly, because everybody is trying to, you know, uh, uh, divert uh, their conflicts inside of the country. Into the domestic arena, and therefore we see many, many geopolitical conflicts happening, and which are curbing、uh, the whole supply chain and disrupt the stability of the international global business network. And that combined together caused、uh, the high inflation recently. And I think recently,、uh, all the Fed,、uh, the, including the Fed and all the other central banks, realized that we need to tighten up the money supply, and they have been doing that for more than half a year. But still, the inflation is here. I think another important cause is not resolved, which is the peaceful environment of the businesses. So we've been still seeing the uprising geopolitical conflict, and in many many other tensions are happening around the world, and the people are not realizing that effect. As a matter of fact, they're using it as the key 
just to try to divert uh, the domestic uh, conflict. So I think this is wrong. We need to sit on the table, negotiate, and return to the peace environment, a peaceful environment. And then I think with the stabilized supply chain all over the world and uh, the commodity supply, and then we will return to the normal track of economy. Mm. So, Aina, so do you agree with uh, Professor Chu and what's the uh, U.S. Federal Reserve's aggressive interest rate hike so far this year mean for those developing countries? Well, I mean, in, in general, yes, I always agree with uh, Professor Chu. He's a very smart guy and far more qualified than I am to quali- uh, talk about this. But let's talk about the um, what the Fed's been doing. Uh, they have been increasing rates, which is causing a huge flow of money into the U.S. These are hot money flows. People are taking their money and say, well, I can, you know, I can put it in the U.S., looks like it's safer, and I can uh, get higher returns. Uh, this causes problems because as monies flow out of these other economies, uh, friend and de- developing, developed, it doesn't matter, emerging, um, these countries are forced to raise their rates, which is causing a recession. They're, they're not in a position where they can do this. Business confidence, is, uh, as Professor Chu has said, is at an all-time low. No one knows what the situation is, and it keeps being fanned by uh, not only physical conflicts uh, like in Ukraine, but also by these kind of tech um, moves by the U.S. to isolate uh, China. No one knows exactly what they should be doing, so therefore they're not going to invest. People are holding on to their cash uh, in the hopes that they can uh, basically vulture uh, assets in the future when the economy gets worse. So uh, right now it's a downward spiral, and uh, the U.S. Fed is, you know, when history looks back at this, they're going to be very, very hard on these guys. They're they're not really uh, uh, dealing with the problem in the way that, in a responsible way, that not only takes into account inflation, which is, yes, big factor, but there's the rest of the world out there. And this is the major difference. You asked earlier on, what's the difference between, you know, what was China saying? China says, we all have to live in this boat. The U.S. is saying, we don't care. It's America first. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, it's not only the developing economies, but we're also talking about the risk of a global recession, of course, and then studying maybe with the UK and European Union. And the European Commission has actually slashed its growth forecast for the next year. It sees the growth of only 0.3%. So what challenges is the Eurozone face this and the next year? And the biggest challenge uh, in the Eurozone is that even a recession may not be able to bring down the inflation. This year, there's widespread wage control and price control in energy sector. And there's a different priority for which sector can use energy first and cheaply. And next year, the situation might just continue uh, in a similar fashion. Um, but other problem might creep in um, because the European market looks different from uh, the, the U.S. market. The labor union isn't that active as in the U.S. right now, but it is still quite tight. There's a shortage of labor in many of the crucial industries, especially when it comes to electronics and consumer sector. So next year, more people will seek for retirement, and that can cause an even bigger pressure in the labor market, which can drive up the wage. 
And once that happens, uh, whatever the central uh, the central banks would do, uh, it will be very difficult to do more to bring down inflation. Mm-hmm. And Professor Chu, so facing with all these global challenges, uh, President Xi actually noted in his remarks at the G20 that major countries should have the uh, responsibility to contribute to global development. So what has China done in recent years to boost the amount of global public goods to promote the shared and inclusive development? Well, I think China actually has been doing a lot which can be witnessed by uh, the rest of the world. For example, economically, China has been uh, starting the uh, Belt and Road Initiative. Um, through this initiative, it's, it's quite different from the Marshall Plan because, first of all, it's nothing with any uh, political condition string attached. And secondly, we only focus on infrastructure, uh, the capacity of self-development, and we're helping uh, the partner countries in the Belt and Road Initiative uh, to have a um, you know a stronger hands up of themselves, and uh, I've been seeing uh, we have already been seeing great result out of this uh, initiative, and have been welcomed by most of the partners uh, who used to be suspicious before, and right now uh, they've been quite like it this idea, mm. and also politically we've been seeing that we have Shanghai Corporation Organization, and uh, we've been joining the WTO reform, and we've been working very actively with UN. Uh, in uh, many, many aspects, and uh, uh, stabilizing the original uh, peace environment and uh, also been helping to resolve the uh, geopolitical conflicts. And also in the digital area, well, this is, I think is worth mentioning, China has been helping many partner regions and countries to build up the infrastructures like the 5G uh, capacity, like the Internet, um, the e-commerce platform. So if you go to the Middle East, ASEAN countries, Africa, you will find Many of this basic IT infrastructures and platform has been supported by China, and uh, and again without any string attached. It's just a business corporation, and even further, sometimes it can be pro bono project. So I think China's practice has been welcomed by the world with no hidden agenda, with no string attached, but just a win-win together. Mm. So Aina, so actually Professor Chu talk about digital economy and digital transformation. President Xi Jinping has called for the G20 members to collaborate more on developing the digital economy. So what do you make of that? And what could the G20 members or the international community do to narrow the digital gap today? Uh, in terms of digital economy, very, very important. Um, and and then this is the reason why. Uh, the digital economy is the future, and it's going to belong to those who have the IP. And China, is, rather than trying to say, oh, uh, you know, China first, America, you know, every, heck with everybody else is saying, look, to create a digital economy, the benefits multiply by the number of countries that it's in. And to have those countries in, you don't want a colonial ma- uh, model where you own everything and they own nothing. So I think China is trying a kind of a digital belt and road um, track where they're going to make sure that uh, countries are in the system. Why is that important? If they're in the system and they're benefiting from it, that means that the adoption is much stronger. They're not going to be tempted to go into a different area uh, or to find other sources. They're not going to be closed out. And certainly, they're going to be able to earn funds from this. And this creates more stable middle-class markets, which is exactly what China is trying to do uh, as it, you know, kind of steers uh, through the future. So different approach, but I think it's very sound because it is much more inclusive.
Well, we're speaking with Ina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute, and Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and Xu Qiang, the Assistant Director of the International Monetary Institute at Renmin University. And after a short break, we'll take a look at China's economy continued its recovery momentum last month. Stay with us. Welcome. I'm Ilaf Elard, economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology, and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China, and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. China's economy continued its mixed recovery in October. Official data shows that the country's industrial output rose by 5% last month from a year earlier, while the retail sales fell by 0.5%. The high-tech manufacturing sector saw the biggest increase of over 10% from a year earlier. So, Professor Chu, what do all this latest economic figure tell us about the China's economy? The number told us um, we have been going through many changes, and the basic situation is fine domestically. We've been not seeing so many changes in domestic situation economically. Uh, international situation can be a bit worrying um, because some of our major trading partner, like U.S., uh, like ASEAN countries, have been also seeing the U-turn point. Uh, USA, you've been seeing the tech giants have been laying. Of a hundred, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people, and uh, you know the the booming economy, uh, the booming partners like Vietnam, uh, they used to experience like two digital last year, and they've been seeing the major fall in the stock market and also a certain potential crisis in the elastic market, and uh, which also jeopardized the outside demand for China. So I think this are all worth uh, our you know caution. So in the future, especially in the next three months, we're going to see more of the policies coming out, and this is going to decide how we're going to go through the next year.、Mm. So then, the high-tech manufacturing sector saw the biggest increase of more than ten percent. So, what do you think about that? What are the leading factors of it? And the high sector, high tech sector, has been prioritized in China's economic growth、uh, since COVID has started. And this year has been proven quite robust, even with such a downward pressure.、Uh, we have seen that investment in infrastructure has been holding up,、uh, and consumption is going down.、Uh, in the coming month, probably the investment in infrastructure would also taper off.、Um, but the manufacturing, especially in the high tech and higher value added supply chain, will still attract both investments from domestic investors and international ones. Um, because now it's actually at a low point in asset prices, 
So a lot of people are trying to take advantage of it. And I believe there will be more opportunities coming up, um, but it will take a lot of patience. Mm, and Dr. Chu, so we've seen the strong trade data in the first 10 months of this year. So China and ASEAN countries have been deepening cooperation, and ASEAN has become China's largest uh, trading partner. So what do they mean for each other? Well, ASEAN country, uh, well, I think it's going to be our uh, closest of trading partner in the next 10 years, uh, in the foreseeable future, uh, for sure. Um, no matter how much of the turbulence we've been seeing right now, because uh, demographically, you're seeing their population structure is really, really young. For example, in, in Vietnam, uh, the average age is just uh, around 25 or 28 years old. That is a very young society. Similar situation is in the Philippines, is in uh, Indonesia, and also we've been seeing uh, the lagging behind economies, uh, economy in this region are catching up very quickly. Vietnam, double-digit growth. Uh, Indonesia catching up very, very quickly. Mm. Uh, they have human resources and energy and the commodities and anything you name it. And also, uh, Singapore has been uh, pulling a lot of financial resources. Malaysia growing very fast. And also, more importantly, they are, together with China and Japan, we are very far away from the turmoil regions in the current world. So in the future, we're going to see no matter what, uh, this region is going to be bonded with each other more closely, and we're going to achieve the win-win result and achieve uh, common prosperity. Mm. And Aina, so China is also an attractive destination for the overseas investment. So how do global investors perceive China's market potential today? And what special industries are they interested in? Well, there's, there's really not a lot of other places you could be looking at right now. Um, if, if I'm an investor, I want a country that's stable, that has uh, markets, uh, production, um, that has you know, a, a complete economy. Uh, and that is not true in the United States nor uh, Europe, especially now. Europe is suffering because they cannot even manufacture you know, the higher-end goods that they used to export to the rest of the world. U.S., tremendous amounts of internal uh, turmoil. Uh, it's just not clear what's going to happen politically. Uh, you know, it's you know as we saw with the last elections, it's just like well, what direction is the U.S. going? So you're not going to see a tremendous amount of investment there. So it leaves literally ASEAN and China. So at at this juncture, uh, you're going to have more flows coming in as people who are trying to have active money, invested money into things that make things are going to look at this market. If you're looking at uh, people who are looking to be vultures, uh, you know, as Dan Dan said, you know, to try to guess how low the asset uh, repricing will go, uh, they're going to keep their money. Uh, they're down in Singapore or they're in the United States uh, waiting for things to get really bad before they swoop in and try to uh, uh, make their future billions. Mm -hmm. Well, we're speaking with Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute, Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Professor Chu Qiang, the Assistant Director of the International Monetary Institute at Renmin University. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.